This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Gene Hopkins is the CMO of Lola.com, and whether she's marketing her company's business travel prowess, stepping into the podcast game, or baking the best chocolate chip cookies, she has consistently been able to find success. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Jean talks about her somewhat circuitous journey to marketing, how she works toward ensuring customer success, and why she believes podcasting is a marketing opportunity too good to be overlooked. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And we have on the other line, Gene, what's going on? Hey, how are you, Ian? It's really nice to be here today. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it is great to have you. We're going to talk a little bit about your background. We're going to talk about Go Mobile. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about content and what that is uh, and all the cool things that are happening um, at your company. So first, how did you get started in marketing? Oh, wow. That's a very good question. Well, I kind of think I was always involved in marketing. My dad was the managing editor of the Springfield Union News, which is locates a city located in Western Massachusetts. And from a very young age, I would have like, I did a newsletter for the four houses in our neighborhood. So I would like hand type this out and on a little typewriter and I make four copies. Obviously, the news wasn't really awesome at age eight. And then in junior high school, I was obviously on the, the, uh, the company, the uh, school newspaper, and then in high school. And when I was in high school, I was a cheerleader. And I feel that a lot of what marketing is, is you're a cheerleader. You're a cheerleader for your company. You're a cheerleader for your brand. And I was also very, very loud. So that's why um, I'm five foot ten. So most cheerleaders are not that tall. But I was able to pick up Candy Diaz. Um, because she was only five feet tall and I could flip her around. So <laughs> I was pretty strong. So what we did is uh, we were the lions. This school was uh, the lions and I would do things for the school dance. Like I do posters for over the gym and be responsible for getting tickets sold for people to come to the dance. And that that's cheerleading. Right. And when it came time to go to college, I wanted to, I thought I could go to be a journalist and my father flat out refused and said, there's no real future in that. Um, It's a, you know, news is typically a very negative uh, environment and and he should know because he's a curmudgeon of the, the highest sort at this point. And I also felt that I he felt that I should do something that was more positive in nature. So I decided to major in accounting. Go figure. So I went to school to major in accounting. (laughs) That old positive uh, (laughs) happiness factory. Well, you know, the thing is when things add up, isn't it awesome? You know, you think about a Sudoku game or anything, things add up. And I could always make things add. It wasn't like I was an amazing math major or anything. So you can always get a job when you have um, an accounting background, a finance background. And so I did, and my first job was at a hospital. 
and in Western Massachusetts. And I remember after being there for a year, Pam, the controller, gave me my annual review and she said, you know, Jean, you probably should think about a different career. And I said, why, Pam? Am I not doing my job? Oh, you're doing your job just great. You're just too loud. And I'm like, oh, okay. And anyways, when I I ended up moving to Milton Bradley Company, which is based in Springfield, I, I got a job there after the hospital and they had to hire two people to replace me. What I did at the at Milton Bradley is I worked for the in-house advertising agency, MB Communications, and I worked on their in-house newsletter, of all things, that went to 7,000 shareholders, and they had 14 different subsidiaries around the world. So at a very young age, 20, 21, I was able to travel. Uh, I went a lot of places, and I worked as a company photographer. So I went to a lot of bowling banquets. I went to a lot of retirement parties. I went to a lot of different offices in South Bend, Indiana is where the South Bend Toy Company was. I play school was based in Chicago um, and I communicated with all the different subsidiaries and different offices at Mill Bradley. And then they were acquired by Hasbro, which is based in Rhode Island. And I worked on the investor relations team. Very exciting. It was great at a very young age. I got to see a lot of things and I also had the support of of management. So that's, how did I get into marketing? It was a fluke. <laughs> uh, one part skill, one part luck, one part something else. Who you know? Uh, Who you know? Grit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So tell me a little bit about your, your current role. Well, right now I'm the chief marketing officer of Lola.com. And why do we say Lola.com? Well, many women that know Lola know it as a feminine products company. And when you do SEO for Lola, um, they have the number one search results. So we started using Lola.com to differentiate ourselves as a B2B travel management software platform. Um, if you think of Concur as being uh, a the standard in the industry. It's been around for 25 years, primarily as an expense platform. It was acquired by SAP about six years ago for $8 billion. So it's a huge enterprise class solution. We are the 180 degree opposite in terms of being a lightweight consumer grade application that you can book and report on and integrate your expenses with our platform in a very easy, simple way. And so we're, we're the lightweight, awesome Lola.com solution. Yeah. And you know, it's funny in our research, uh, of course we came across the other Lola, um, <laughs> but uh, it, 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 what an interesting thing, right? Because I think it's, there's a great marketing lesson in there that, you know, so many times you look at like what domain and maybe it's maybe more of a startup lesson, like what domain is going to be the best and all this sort of stuff and like naming your company and everything. Um, it's like, well, if I have the domain, then, uh, then we'll be good to go for SEO, uh, and to the, to the, you know, riches go the spoils or, or to whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and then, and then boom, you have to do that. But I mean, you look at like salesforce.com. I mean, you know, for so long calling themselves.com or, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good, it's a good branding reminder. And it's, uh, it's a, it's kind of a call to action when you add in the .com. It's like, hey, you should go there. Well, uh, Lola, our founder, um, uh, Paul English, also founded Kayak, which is a common search tool for uh, 
travel, primarily leisure travel. Uh, but he, the low, the LO is for longitude. The LA is for latitude. And the original logo was a little bit of a gyroscope, which was tilted at 23 degrees, which is what the, the earth is tilted at, at 23 degrees. It was a little esoteric for people to kind of understand that because I had to, I had to pretty much explain it to everybody. And the low and the law, I think people get, you, you actually get that on an intellectual level. The, the challenge is that they did end up having to buy for a considerable amount of money the Lola.com domain because it was owned by a clothing company that went bankrupt in 2009. And when they started this company in 2015, Paul likes short domains, short domain names. And he thought of it and he bought it. He bought the domain. And somewhere all of the flat earth truthers are just <laughs> rolling their eyes at this whole longitude, latitude. What are you talking about? It's the essence of time, Ian. Without, without latitude, without longitude, people could not tell time. Because if you think about it, if you think about Greenwich in England, and that's where the original time, when how time elements, because that's how they used to navigate. Navigate was Navigation was done by the stars in the moon. But once they had the ability to be able to use latitude and longitude, then they were able to figure out the time elements. And that became, that made navigation safer and easier for people. So if you've never been to Greenwich, it's a cool place to go to, to see the origins of how we actually keep time. And it is a man-made construction. Uh, and there's a whole backstory on physics and everything on this because I worked for a company that it was all about time. And uh, there's uh, hydrogen masers that um, 48 national measurement institutes in the world all combine in their different countries to be able to agree on what is time. Because, again, it's a man-made institution. And as you know, this is a year. We're going to have a leap day on February 29th. And sometimes you hear about people saying we have to add a leap second. We have to add a leap second at the end of the year just to make sure that all your networks on a global basis are aligned from a time element. Because there used to be, without dedicated timestamps, you can think about what happened in the stock market. You can think about maybe trades going through that. You can think about arbitrage and money moving when time was not the standard to which you had to adhere to for legal reasons. <laughs> yeah, Seth Godin did a great episode on this. Did he? Um, did he? Sure. Yeah, no, he, I, on, uh, I think it was on Akimbo or one of, I, I'm, oh, I funny. I'm not, can't remember. But anyways, um, or maybe it was just on his blog, but um, yeah, the idea that like, it just didn't matter. You never like, humans didn't need to sync on a certain time, right? right. Like there was no need to like 1205 didn't matter. There was nothing that mattered about 1205. Right. You would have like your town clock um, <laughs> and that, and that dinged at 12, you know, or whatever it is. And that's, and that's how everybody knew what time it was. Right. So, uh, yeah, no, I think it's, it, it is really fascinating, um, kind of concept and similarly, what more appropriate to be dealing with time than business travel, right? Because, um, this is one of the things that I think, um, you know, you could, you could throw around the word disruption or, or whatever it is. Um, but I think that generally, if you look at the travel industry, I would, I would say 
that we kind of really haven't got better since kayak, you know, yeah. we really kind of haven't got better. And, um, we all kind of still have the same problems going on. And, uh, a company like Lola.com has a very specific way to be solving the problem of corporate travel. Yes. Yeah, so we're focused strictly on B2B. When the company was originally founded, it was B2C for leisure travel. But if you think about it, business travel occurs on a daily, weekly, monthly basis for most individuals. At any given time, there's a million people in the air in North America that are going from point A to point B. And I think the, what we're trying to bring is a simple solution that allows you to be able to set a travel policy. Many organizations have a uh, sort of a, an acknowledgement, an internal acknowledgement that the, each employee is going to do what's right for the company. But if you don't set up those boundaries, those barriers, uh, what's good for you might not be good for me. Like I would not want to be staying in an unsafe area of uh, San Francisco, for an example. And, but you might be like, Hey, I'm okay with this. I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. But those kind of parameters need to be communicated effectively to your team because business travel is one way you can either make an employee happy or make an employee unhappy. Um, unhappiness comes from, uh, not having a direct flight, as an example. Unhappiness comes from not staying in a hotel that's near the convention or the meeting that you're at and trying to negotiate the travel components from going from point A to point B. What we're able to do, um, earlier, uh, earlier, your producer was talking to me and saying, like, there's a big storm in the Midwest that's headed here and, and to the East Coast. And I said, yeah, and what that ends up doing for us at Lola is we anticipate, we look at the weather, and we have an, a storm team. And because we have uh, 25 so support people, services people that work, they don't all work 24-7, but the team has coverage on a 24-7 basis, that when a storm is coming, we want to look at who, who of our travelers are being affected and being able to implement the waivers that happen with the airlines. I mean, I'm sure you've watched, like sometimes you're flying, you're going into Chicago, there's a storm coming, and you're saying, I really don't want to be stuck in Chicago for an extended period of time. But if there's a waiver, then you can change your flight and be able to move to a different day, still have the meeting, but maybe not that particular day. So our team, and they're called internally the wombats, they are the ones that are the, <laughs> yeah, the wombats because a bunch of them is a wisdom. And the, uh, the, the, <laughs> the wisdom of uh, uh, wombats, they, they have a, every two uh, weeks, they have a meeting called the wisdom den. And it's, it, it's really, it's, it's a nice way to be able to refer to it because internally you usually hear, hear of people being called ninjas or support people or something, but we call them the wombats. And one of our values as an organization is the wombatitude. We call that to be able to help our customers, help our customers no matter where they are, when they are, to be able to help them be able to be get home when they want to get home for a child's play or for a meeting or something that, that you need to get to. So it's this, this attitude of being able to be a support network. And we have so many positive reviews that we are the number one travel management platform rated by various uh, review sites like Captera, Trustpilot, Trust Radius, those things. 
And one of the things that, you know, we always do a little test drive of the site before we do our interviews. And I love Lola.com because you have some killer marketing collateral on the site. So I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about that because I really, really love the cost comparisons um, that, that you do. And you have a section at the bottom of the site, you know, listeners should check it out where you compare your company versus a, a bunch of your competitors. And there's a lot of times that companies do this in a pretty clunky way, or they let their sale or they just give those tools to their salespeople. They don't put it like on the site. You know what I mean? Um, I'm just curious, like, why did you decide to do that? How do you, uh, how do you kind of do those bake-offs um, with potential prospects? Um, and how do you kind of think of like, you know, marketing those clear value propositions? Well, that's a good question, Ian, and several parts to that question. So let me try to answer it in the best possible way. Part of the reason that they're in the footer of the site is for search engine optimization, because not everybody knows from a search standpoint to look for travel management software, corporate travel management software. You know, just think about the long tail keywords. They may have looked or saw an ad from a competitor. For example, one of our competitors has $400 million in the bank and just got another round of funding again, and they can spend more money than God. And if somebody was to look up their name then they might find our competitive page and go, oh, there's a competitor or competitor to this particular company. And we end up getting a lot of deals because people compare us to the competition. They end up finding us by landing on that particular page from uh, just from a Google search. And as a result, they come to us because unlike all the competition, we are flat pricing. We don't charge you per booking. And most all the other competitors charge you for the software. They charge you for the implementation. And then they also charge you per trip or per booking. So you book a hotel, you book an airfare, you book a car. That could be one trip and that could be an extra $50. Now, if I said $50 to you, Ian, you'd be like, well, that's not that much money. But every time that you change, every time that you call in, so as an organization, you could end up with uh, an invoice from the company at the end of the month for $5,000 that you didn't budget for. Now, versus us, that you can buy one year of our platform, which is not going to cost you anything. Um, the essential package is good for about 100 uh, travelers, uh, roughly, to be able to cover them for the entire year for $4,800 for the entire year. And you get the full support of the team, plus you get implementation and customer success. You get all these wonderful features. Now, I sound like I'm selling you, aren't, don't I, Ian? I don't mean to, but you were asking <laughs> me, and what wins for us is the flat pricing because people don't particularly finance people they don't like uh, not knowing how much they're going to be spending in a year. The accountant in you. Uh, <laughs> you were listening, Ian. You were listening. Thank you. One thing's to add up. No, I know. Predictability is key. I mean, it is one of the things, that especially when you, you know, when you're in kind of one of those roles, you know, you want to hit your projections, right? Like that's, that's the KPI, right? It's not, hey, you know, we underspent by a bunch of money. It's you said you were going to spend X. Did you spend X? 
So, you know, you also have another um, interesting kind of advantage. Your CEO is a former CMO, yes. which we love to hear and we love to see um, because that stuff is exciting to us. Uh, but um, I'm curious, like, you know, how involved do you, you know, as you're talking with the leadership team, as you're planning this, how involved are you on things like, you know, the pricing model that you talked about on, you know, developing that type of sales collateral versus just like some of the other kind of more pure marketing functions that you could say, um, you know, op optimizing channels and, you know, doing inbound all that sort of stuff. I'm, I'm very involved and I'm a big believer in pricing. Um, I think we're underpriced uh, and, and that uh, where we should increase our prices. And, and I sit in the sales uh, organization. I, I love sales. I feel that the sales and marketing component is so important. Call it smarketing, if you will. Um, working, for <laughs> Mike Vol working for Mike Volpe, I worked for him at HubSpot for three years. And uh, he is a super, super, super smart guy. And he is, he's very, he's internal. Where I'm external, like, you, you know, you look, I can't play poker for beans, but he is a fantastic poker player. And he, he's really good at looking at a situation and thinking about things. Uh, the benefit about working for a CEO as talented as he is, is it's great. And with his CMO background, he, he knows if I'm doing a good job or not doing a good job. And, and that's, yeah. that's, that's, a, that's an asset, right? Um, he knows how I work. And, and that's one of the things, you know, I've been recruited many, many times in my career. And it's always good to know who you're working for as far as the CEO is concerned. And, and knowing what they want, how they want it, how, you know, what, I mean, I'm not friends with him outside the company, but I deeply respect him and his opinions and, and how, you know, I, I, I would work for him again and again because I know how he operates. He's fair. He's an extremely fair human being. And you can't ask for anything better of your CEO, right? And he also, he makes my entire team better. Um, I'm also responsible for customer success at Lola. When we first launched a team, we uh, brought one person over from the sales organization that had industry experience, had Lola experience, and started a customer success team. And I went to Mike and I said, look, I believe that customer success belongs in marketing. And the reason I believe this is that they need access to the website. They need to make sure that we're, you know, from a customer marketing view of the world, that we're talking to the right customers in the right voice. If we set this up as a silo, this person is not going to get the necessary support that they need to be successful. And he agreed, and it's been part of my team, and now we're hiring our fourth customer success manager because we're growing by leaps and bounds in terms of the number of customers that we have, and we're building out the systems and the workflows and the data, and we're into renewals. In the first year, you know, we weren't doing renewals. Now we're doing renewals, and I want to be attached to revenue. I want to keep that ARR. I want to keep those logos. So I definitely have a sales mindset as well. And, and I also have a great relationship with our head of finance, Rebecca Morrison, to, to make sure that we're doing things effectively and efficiently. How did you look at, you know, this time around, 
look at customer success, look at the customer journey from a marketing perspective and, and the different touch points that, that marketing has on that journey. Some degree of automation, the wombats are touching them uh, either via chat. And so they're using a tool called intercom with chat and being able to integrate that. Our CRM and our content management system is HubSpot. And we just added the service ticketing component. Um, we're using Drift as our chat bot um, on the, the, the website. And it's, you know, when you're looking at your tech stack, you're trying to automate as much of this functionality as you can. So the customer success team, as well as the product marketing team that's part of my organization, is working with the Wombats to be able to help customers when they're challenged um, in a, a, a you know, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to set this up. I, I need a receipt. I need this. And to be able to give them the tools to DIY it, right? We want to educate our customers in the best possible way without, you know, you want to teach them how to fish and so that they'll be more and more successful and stickier with the individual product. So it's, it's different in this organization because we are we are a startup. I mean, we've really been selling B2B for 18 months. And as a result of that, I'm in a very different place than several of the companies that I, I worked at as a CMO. Uh, it was more of a um, older uh, IT-based, uh, maybe even on-premises software that had its own issues with very, very large organizations and different teams within the organization would be using that particular software and communicating communicating with the different channels. So um, I'm looking at Ipswich that was acquired by Progress Software was um, you had an indirect channel that accounted for about 40% of its overall revenue. And then you had a direct channel strictly in the United States that sold directly to the end user. And then outside of the United States, you had partners. Um, you had different distributors that also had these particular partners and trying to figure out who was on first, like what is the relationship of this partner with this person and the number of price lists in I cannot even tell you the number of price lists that had to be updated every single time that we made a change and the versions of the software that were out there. You didn't have, unfortunately, SaaS is great because you update, you update it, everybody gets updated. On-premises software, you could be using a tool that was 20 years old and you cannot convince this IT leader to say, would you like to come into this century? You, you know, like, why don't we, up, we'll upgrade you. It's not going to cost you. Nope, I'm fine. I like my reports like this. I like the red. I like the green. I'm good. And trying to upgrade them is always problematic because at what point do you end support for something that's 10, 15 years old? And how many customers do you have on it? You have a thousand customers on it. Are you going to end support for it? What are you going to do? So it's, it's a whole different model that what we're allowed to do at Lola is we're scrappy and snappy. We can move super fast because everything's happening. And you can see the ship it channel from engineering that if a bug gets reported, we're, we're able to fix it on the fly. A customer says, I need this. We're able to do it. So it's, it's exciting. It's, it's very, very different. It, it is so funny how you know, things like transparency and, and uh, self-serve or, you know, just like all the tools 
now kind of have caught up with the way that you can, you know, sell, purchase and, 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 and buy and do all that stuff. Because um, like you said, how much harder it was to do all of those things for the sales rep, right? Like the sales rep had this, had this Herculean task because, you know, the, um, the kind of ball is always moving and it's just so hard, so hard to hit it. But now it's like you said, just, Hey, pricing's on the website. Like, you know, and, and now you, you, you put that person in a position where they actually can be the trust advisor. They can be uh, that consultative sales rep and like help answer questions directly for that individual customer. And like, what a place for, for marketing and sales to be aligned is, Hey, we're giving you all these tools to, to go fight those, uh, you know, those, those tough questions. And one of the great things that is out there as a resource that you use as a CMO after my own heart <laughs> is podcasting. Um, Absolutely. So, so you have launched a number of podcasts for Lola.com. Tell me why you decided to do this. Award-winning, Ian. Um, I, <laughs> I buried the lead. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, the, uh, I think that many opportunities for people to be interviewed. Uh, we, so we set up when I first joined, uh, I feel, find that podcasts, when you have something to say and you, and you have really good guests and you've been able to build out your content calendar to such a degree. So we had three separate ones, one for Mike Volpe, our CEO. He started doing one on Agile Ops and, and uh, we had a summit in November that was targeted towards finance people. And the idea behind Agile Operations was how can you be snappy and scrappy in your company? Why do you have to use all these enterprise class uh, tools when there's so many other tools that allow you more flexibility, that cost less, and when you're building your tech stack, you don't always have to go enterprise. And he talked to a lot of um, founders and that sort of thing. So that was a slightly different audience. Then Ryan Ball, our VP of uh, sales, he wanted Road Warrior Radio. I was able to buy the, the domain for him, and we set this up. And he talked to, this, this guy has more contacts than you, you could possibly know. So he was talking to all these interesting people about what it was like to be on the road, how did you handle it, different things, and lots of, lots of really, really good guests. And mine was table fries. And mine was really designed for the women at Lola.com. I find that many women are not always uh, asked to be guests on podcasts and for one reason or another. And it's a hurdle also doing a webinar or a speaking gig or something that is hard for many women to overcome. So I felt that if I could get people in my organization, women in my organization to talk on a podcast and realize that it's nothing more than a conversation. I'm sitting directly across from you. I'm asking you these questions. And they were really, you know, innocuous, like, what's your favorite book? What's the last book that you read? You know, how did you end up joining Lola? You know, you know, who do you aspire to uh, have dinner with? Things like that. And it gave us a chance to be able to talk. People were incredibly nervous to be able to come and, and then, then when it was over, they're like, oh, it's done. 22 minutes, right? We tried to keep it short, but it also gave us a body of information that allowed people, new employees to be able to go back and listen and learn something about their colleagues. 
And it was a lot of fun. And the whole concept of table fries is uh, the idea was because we like to share a lot. And, and that was the idea behind it. So all, all great stuff, lots and lots of fun. Uh, we moved from one office where we were doing these podcasts in the basement of the, the building, a 200-year-old building in Boston that was right on the, the, uh, the, the channel. There's a, a channel, Fort Point Channel, and it had been flooded a couple of times so that there was a, it was a little dank and musty is all I can say. And then we moved a couple of blocks away to the 20th floor. We have this fantastic soundproof studio, so it's quite lovely. And uh, I, I'm a big believer in podcasts because it gives you a chance to be able to learn more. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we're extremely bullish on on podcasts. But I, what I always think is so funny, it's, it's so comical to me that people are like, kind of like even ask like, hey, you know, like, are you, you know, are you bullish on podcasts or whatever it is? It's like, um, well, like $18 billion a year spent on radio. And like, how many people do you know that listen to the radio versus how many people want to listen to stuff on demand? Like, like where do you think that that is going sort of a thing. So I just kind of always think it's funny when people are like, Oh, podcasts. And like, well, everybody has a podcast now and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, did we say that about blogs? Did we say that? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's just, right. it's just a funny thing to me. It's like, it's not like it's some sort of like revolutionary thing. It is just on demand audio, which of course is going to be preferable to, you know, radio that just happens to be whatever it is like it just seems so obvious to me was that something that you and your team talked about like this is clearly an opportunity that we should be pursuing and like were there any challenges with kind of getting started on that well I'm um, like anything from a content perspective you know I, I oftentimes use the example everybody in their marketing job has had um, possibly the people ops team come to them and say, we need to do a company newsletter. We have to do a newsletter. So I want to get started and we're going to start doing a newsletter. And so you get the first meeting, you have 37 people in the room and you have 148 ideas, you know, for your first issue of your monthly newsletter. So you do that and you know, there's all these, how personal do you get? Do we do babies? Do we do, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, Really, I'm a big believer that a newsletter should have like three stories in it, maybe a product story, maybe a company story, maybe something fun. It not, not a hundred, it's not a newspaper, right? So the second newsletter that you do, there's maybe 15 people that show up for the meeting to be able to do the editorial content. And then by the third issue, you maybe have six people. My point being is you never have a fourth one is because it becomes so problematic. And you have to build that cadence. You have to be able to say, if I'm gonna to commit to a newsletter or I'm gonna to commit to a podcast, who's your audience? Who are the speakers gonna be? When are you gonna publish? And you need to be able to build it out. You have to think about 20 ahead to be able to say, how can I get all of these things out so that, because it, it, many, many, podcasters, they don't really start to find their stride and find their audience until they've been doing it for a year. And, you know, and, and, and I don't think people think it's going to take that long. Oh, everybody's just going to sign up to listen to me. Why? I mean, why? What have you done that's provocative? What have you done that, that makes people want it? I mean, listen, to, people talk about Joe Rogan all the time because his podcast can be 30 minutes or 30 hours. I mean, he goes out on a, he go, does a rant, but how long has he been doing it? What about Mark Morin? 
And Mark has been doing it for a long, long time. But how long did he do it before he became known for it? So, and I'm, those are just kind of famous people. I mean, here we are doing a podcast that you've been doing for a while, but you have a body of work that people can reference. And, and I'm just a speaker on this one podcast, but you've had lots of speakers, dozens of speakers that all are approaching it from a slightly different way. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the great pieces of advice that I heard kind of early on was, was actually from former VP of product at Netflix talking about uh, Gibson Biddle. He was talking about um, how they thought of like planning for Netflix. And he's like, it's really hard to plan in one year time horizons, usually under, you know, usually over promise, under deliver, but it's way easier to plan in five year time horizons. And so that's kind of how I think about doing shows is like, what does this show look like in five years? Because I think that a lot of people want to create something. And I think it's like 80% of podcasts don't go past uh, the seventh episode. Oh, really? I think there's something like, oh. yeah, there's something like 600,000 podcasts out there. And I think 500,000 of them don't, don't publish anymore. I mean, you're talking about like, it truly is a graveyard. And then for corporations, it's like way worse than that. Oh, I guess. You know, yeah, people change out and there's, you know, home cooking and there's all sorts of, you know, other stuff. So you have to do a really good job. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but, but what's really interesting though, is like, you, you do need to like, look at things kind of like the same way that like a TV showrunner does yes. or, a, or whatever it is. Like, what are the first four seasons or what is the uh, utility of the thing that you're creating? I think that so much of content right now is about like, we have content numbers that we want to hit for our KPIs rather than like this one unique thing is going to really shine an insight that, you know, people wouldn't, wouldn't normally have. A great example is, um, you know, the, what Blue Wolf has done for years and years with state of Salesforce for, you know, for over a decade, you know, it's like, this is a thoroughly researched in-depth piece of content that they use over and over again. Um, and I'm sure you and I could talk content for the next hour, but, <laughs> but the idea though, is like so much of it is just like, well, we need a blog post today or, you know, two blog posts is better than one blog post or, or is, whatever. Are like, they we really? need to make a podcast. Or, I, yeah. I, no, I, people say that. I, but it's not true. It's, it's not an accurate statement. I mean, it's not two blog posts are better than one. You should have one really good blog post that is able to, to stand the test of time. If you, if you go back to HubSpot, uh, Brian Halligan and Darmesh, and Darmesh's first blog post that he created for HubSpot was six months before they even launched the company. It's while they were at school at MIT. They were at MIT Sloan in the business school, and that particular blog post has been read over a million times, and that's from 2006. So we're looking at 13, 14 years ago, and what we're doing is we're trying to stand the test of time. And then you take a look at your blog post, or you take a look at your podcast, and how can you optimize them? How can you look at what is... I don't know if people think about like just throw it up against the wall and see what sticks. I, I've had to ask my content team to dial it down because we weren't promoting our content. We've got lots. And I knew early on that we had no content. So trying to find our voice, trying to figure out like who are we talking to and, and also helping it to be something that the sales organization would be able to use um, in conjunction with the, the, the actual content that we're creating. So it can stand the test of time, but well, you know, it's, 
You know, it's funny to, to interrupt for a second because uh, to, to kind of nail the point home and I forget the name of the guest. So I, I apologize uh, <laughs> to, to whoever it was, but they were saying that they're like the average, like, you know, like corporate, like tweet or whatever. It gets like five likes or four likes or whatever it is. Uh-huh. So it's like not even all of the people on your marketing team right. are liking this stuff that you're yeah, creating. Right. Exactly. And I mean, I think about that all the time with like some of these things I'm like, you know, you're creating stuff just to create it. And like, no one's really proud of the work. Right. Like, right. They're proud that they got done with it. It's like, you know, getting done with a workout, but you know, all, all workouts are not created equal. Right. You know, like it, it doesn't mean you're working the right muscles and it doesn't mean you're actually having them. That's right. And it's not a one and done. I mean, it, it's how is this supporting other things? And I think uh, when I, when I was at HubSpot, we created this thing called content camp. And uh, Jonah Lopin, who was responsible for the success team, the idea was people that were new to HubSpot weren't thinking in terms of here, here's an email, here's a blog post, and taking 10 blog posts to be able to create an ebook. Now you've created the ebook, let's show you how to make a landing page. So the whole idea behind Content Camp was a 12-week program that we, I did with Mark Killens, who is now at Drift, um, but at the time he was at HubSpot, and we would talk about do this, do this, do this, and it will add up to something else. But if you don't if you don't do anything, you're not going to add up to, you need that one plus one to equal the three, the five, the seven. And you have to be consistent about your cadence, about what you're doing. So we did a lot of things like uh, reviewing 60 landing pages in 60 minutes or 60 emails in 60 minutes to be able to teach people, here's a great opportunity for optimization. Uh, here's a landing page. Where's your call to action? Don't bury your call to action. Where, what, what are some of the things that you can look at? And I think that podcasts are something that can stand the test of time. I think many organizations do a great job of promoting them. And other ones, it's, it's just, you know, you're just a cry in the wilderness. Yeah. And I think that a key element that people really miss on this is like arming your sales reps. Like the big thing is if your sales reps don't have time to listen to the podcast, that's specifically like a, so not every, not every episode, but the episodes that involve the prospects and the customers and, or the, or the industries that they should be doing. If they're not going to go listen to that episode and share that with the prospect or the customer, whoever it is, then you're just not going to get the best results. What you want to do is like create a common operating picture between your sales rep and the prospect that they've both enjoyed the same piece of content and then can discuss the benefits of it together. Like that's, if that's the goal, like that's the shiny object on the hill, you need to empower them to be able to do that. That's one of the big things that we see with whether it's podcasts or blog posts, you have to you arm the sales reps with those things. Otherwise you're just not going to get the, as much impact out of it. So true, Ian. That is just so accurate. And I think it's challenging for a salesperson in any role. They, they have a certain uh, workflow. They have a certain process that they have to follow. The most successful ones are the lather, rinse, repeat. Just get up and do it over and over and over again. And they don't have enough time. I mean, I know our, our sales team at Lola, 
are sometimes struggle trying to keep up with the deluge of information and how do you delineate between what is uber important and what what is just merely important and so much of it is education and that's why I feel that sitting together with the sales organization to have Alex you know say something to me like okay where is this gene or have Jordan say something to me or Bridget or you know whomever being able to it's not just me I mean anybody on my team do you know where I could find this I need this it's a lot easier for them to yell um, in an open office, as you can well imagine, and they uh, and being able to say, oh, yeah, we've got that. We've got you covered. Here you go. Last thing before we get into our lightning round here, you wrote a book called Go Mobile oh, geez, um, huh? uh, a, a few years ago. <laughs> Not a few. And, uh, many years yeah, ago. It's many like, years ago. It's so outdated now. I mean, I feel so bad because when we, it was actually published right at the very beginning of 2012 by Wiley. Great people. It was part of, you know, uh, David Meerman Scott's uh, whole, uh, uh, his uh, new uh New, oh God, I'm, I'm, he's going to kill me because I can't remember this. The new rules of PR, the new rules of inbound marketing, everything. And so he, he's, he's been a, and he just came out with a new book, Fanacracy, that he wrote with his daughter. And it's a, it's a really, really good book if you had it about building your own fan base and how customers are your, your best source of fans. So yeah, but I mean, think about it, Ian. That was eight years ago. And think about how that changed because even eight years ago, did you did you wake up or go to sleep with your uh, mobile phone in your hand? Unlikely. Now, what, what are people staring at all the time? Wait a second, do you know that I sleep with my mobile phone? <laughs> I know you have it on your end table plugged in just in case somebody calls or you're right. I mean, that's, that's what everybody has now. And at the time that I wrote it, I add, I added a chapter in there about B2B marketing because so much of it was consumer and, and SMS messaging and that sort of thing. Um, it, it, the concept of loyalty programs and believe it or not, we had a, a whole chapter on QR codes. And I mean, if you think about QR code, do you have a QR code reader on your phone? Unlikely. But because all you have to do really is just point your camera at it and it'll be able to read it now. And it's not like you need a separate app to be able to read it. But it's the concept of mobile marketing. I felt when I was at HubSpot, I was watching the number of people that were coming to the website via mobile devices. How many people were filling out forms and it was increasing at like 1% per month. And I'm thinking, this is just, this is just going to keep going up and we, we need to stay ahead of it. And Wiley, um, the, the publisher, you know, agreed. And that's why we, we ended up, uh, Jamie Turner and I ended up writing that particular book. And the one thing that I wanted to touch on with this too, because I thought that it was really interesting and I've talked about it before on the show, but um, what's so fascinating to me right now is everybody's on mobile, but if you look at executives, it skews way more mobile than other people because they're constantly in meetings, constantly on the go, constantly traveling, all this sort of stuff. And I think that it's a really interesting point that if you're creating things for a C-suite person and you're creating these like in-depth whatever it is, it's probably not going to be the thing that moves the needle for them or, or gets their attention. And the one thing, you know, back to the podcast that they all do is have a lot of windshield time, airplane time, things like that. So if you're creating something for executive leaders that is valuable, 
you pretty much have to make it mobile now. And so that's, I just wanted to mention it and it's cool that people write books. Uh, so (laughs) there is an audio version on audible if you wanted to listen to it as well. So, but you know, you're absolutely right. And, um, I use Mike Volpe as an example, as our CEO, he is, he uses his phone constantly. He has a very small little notebook that he carries around with him to, to write some things down, but he is constantly in motion. He's constantly using his phone to be able to communicate and and move things forward. And you think about the individual projects and the individual work that he's doing. And he has a you know pretty long commute when he comes into Boston. He uses the commuter time to be able to do things. But he's it, it makes you more efficient, I think, when you when you have the right tool to be able to communicate effectively. Speaking of efficient, let's get into our lightning round. The lightning round, as always, is brought to you by Salesforce. And Marketing Trends Podcast has always been brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. You can learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. It's the world's number one CRM. Check them out. We love Salesforce. You will too. They bring marketing and engagement together. Salesforce.com slash marketing. Lightning round questions. Gene, are you ready? Are there any valuable prizes, Ian? That's what I want to know. There is. There, I'll, we'll give a prize at the end for the best answers. <laughs> Fair enough. Number one. What app on your phone is the most fun? Um, I play a game called Pyramid, and that, that's it. And I also like Swarm. I, I get a big kick out of being the, the mayor of Lola or being the, the mayor of my local stop and shop. I, I find that amusing. Favorite TV show or podcast? Uh, favorite TV? I don't watch television that much. I, um, oh, boy, that's, that's, a, that's a good one. I... My husband and I started watching, uh, and we watched them all, four seasons of the Durrells in Corfu, and it was about a family that moved from Bournemouth, England, to uh, Corfu, an island in uh, in Greece, and it was it was a very, very good story, and the, the female leads in that uh, show, just very, very well-written. I really enjoyed it. What do you do? for fun or what is a special hidden talent? My special hidden talent uh, is making the world's best chocolate chip cookies. So I use two sticks of butter. I use two and a quarter cups of flour. I use uh, baking powder in it to help them rise. I use five different kinds of chocolate chips. I use Mexican vanilla. I make a, it's one cup of brown sugar and a half a cup of white sugar and oatmeal. And then I mix coconut in there and walnuts with the five different kinds of Giardelli chocolates, the the super cocoa, large ones, the semi-sweet, the baby semi-sweet, the white chocolate and milk chocolate. Well, Hillary, our esteemed producer, will be (laughs) uh, sending you some address information with some return postage. But the only thing is, no, we have to pull the walnuts. Otherwise, uh, we're going to kill uh, Hillary. Oh, we can't do that. Definitely That's, not I can, what we want. Our marketing <laughs> trends audience will be devastated. Yeah, we can't no do that. Podcast. No, we can't do that. So I can take it out. No nuts. Last question. Yes. What is your best advice for first-time CMO? This is a good question, Ian. Um, I think that a first-time CMO usually gets bogged down in the website. They think that they have to change the brand or change the colors or change the website or change the blah, blah, blah. What I suggest is Take a look at your database, 
figure out what's converting, what's not converting for the sales team. How is your website working right now? The last thing that you need to do is completely re-engineer a website when um, I've, I've watched CMOs come in and combine existing websites that had millions of visitors, lots of traffic, killed the community site, did this or did that because they wanted to make a bold move. And in reality, they end up killing themselves and shooting themselves in the foot and they don't end up lasting very long where they are. If you can figure out the mechanics of where your customers are coming from, what sales is looking for, figure out how to optimize what you already have, you're going to be lightning years ahead of any, any other CMO in that particular role. Okay, this is the real last question. What question do you, what question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? What question I never get asked? Um, yeah, I, I, I think a good question would be um, how many people have you helped in your career or what, what is one thing that you're most proud of? And I'd like to say that I've been lucky enough to have during my career on my team, I have seven people that ha are now CMOs. I think I have 12 now that are VPs of product or growth or something in uh, a marketing type of the world. And I like to think that I've given more recommendations on LinkedIn than I've received. So I, that's I, awesome. I love that. <laughs> that that's a, uh, you know, and that's, that's something that I would say for all of your listeners there is somebody in your career that you should thank and you've probably thought about it. And maybe when you see them, you say, you know, I really appreciate it. When was the last time that you went on LinkedIn and actually endorsed somebody? And I'm not talking the little endorsement, like I love email marketing or I love this or I do that. When was the last time that you actually wrote a recommendation for somebody that you respect or like? And I, I ask you that because you'd be surprised that the value of a recommendation, it, like a thank you note, <laughs> if you will, uh, is, is so highly valued and underutilized as an appreciation tool. Couldn't agree more. Gene, thanks so much for coming on. Everybody should check out Lola.com for your corporate travel needs. Yes. Uh, ask, your, ask your CFO about Lola.com. Anything else? Any final thoughts? No, I'm good. Thank you so much, Ian. This was a blast. Hey, Hillary. I'll take out the I'll take out the walnuts for you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for hanging out. Bye bye. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels.
But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.